This is AgriPulse Open Mic. I'm your host, Jeff Nally. Our guest this week is Minnesota U.S. Senator Tina Smith. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Learn more about the Zero for Zero plan to zero out global subsidies at sugaralliance.org. AgriPulse Open Mic continues with Senator Tina Smith next. America's sugar growers are among the most efficient and sustainable in the world. But billions of dollars in foreign sugar subsidies have distorted the global market for surplus sugar, driving prices to levels barely one-half of global cost of production. Eliminating America's no-cost sugar policy without first reforming the global sugar market would jeopardize family farms, good-paying jobs, and our domestic supply of sugar. A new bill called Zero for Zero takes action to zero out all foreign sugar subsidies and level the playing field. Learn more at SugarAlliance.org. This is AgriPulse Open Mic. Among the many legislative and regulatory challenges facing farmers and ranchers in her state, Minnesota Senator Tina Smith says dry weather tops the list. Well, I'll tell you, I was just looking at the most recent drought map, and if you you know see Minnesota, I don't think there's a single county in Minnesota this last week that wasn't affected by the drought one way or another. And those big swaths of red showing how much of the state is in uh, serious uh serious conditions is experiencing severe drought is getting bigger every week so it's a huge worry and you know it's it's i think it's sort of a it's such a shame because the beginning of the year was just feeling so hopeful for uh farmers the yields were looking like they were going to be good and the spring weather was good so it is uh you know just really worrisome i know we need rain right away um one of the biggest problems of course it affects everybody in every sector whether you're uh you know, producing corn or soybeans or fruit and vegetables or sugar beets. But one of the hardest hit in Minnesota, and I bet this is the case in a lot of places around the country, are the uh, cattle ranchers, uh, the beef cattle um, folks. Um, they're just running out of hay, and the hay that they can find is too expensive. It doesn't pencil out. So there, we're, we're seeing some real trauma there. So what do we do? Of course, you know, Mother Nature is going to be Mother Nature. And, I mean, frankly, I think the people in Minnesota who are – in the ag sector, understand that our climate is changing. It's we're seeing more extreme weather events, and this is you know it's not, probably not going to get any better. Um, but we're looking at a couple of things: some good bipartisan legislation to help open up CRP land for haying when we have um, weather emergencies like this. Uh, we've been working with my colleague Senator Klobuchar to um, ask the USDA to try to use what authorities they have to. Um, um, to do that this year, and then I'm working on legislation with Senator Thune from South Dakota to do that um, longer term. Um, and then, you know, just trying to make sure folks have access to FSA and they know where to go to get their questions answered. I wonder whether we're not going to need more um, as we as we um, head into the the summer and the fall, and who knows what uh, what Mother Nature will bring next year, right? There have been some proposals for additional funds for WIP and WIP Plus. Uh, again, is this a time will tell situation as you get to the fall and see ultimately uh, how many bushels are going in the tank and how much challenge it's been for your other farmers and ranchers? 
Well, I think we need to look at all of that. You know, we know that uh, WHIP and WHIP Plus are, you know, really have been helping farmers and producers recover from losses. I think they are good programs from what I hear from the, you know, the people that I talk to in Minnesota. Uh, so, you know, I think we're going to have to look at what more we need to do as these kinds of natural disasters um, you know, become more, um, you know, more prevalent. WIP was, of course, de- designed to help, you know, people dealing with wildfire and hurricanes. Um, but we're going to be seeing extreme, you know, pluvian floods that are, you know, there's just no place for the water to go. And, and then, of course, drought like we're seeing right now in so much of the country. Slipping to politics, uh, senators have reached a deal on a bipartisan infrastructure package. First of all, how do those provisions meet needs for Minnesota? Are there other areas that you see have been left out? Well, this is good news. The, uh, we are moving to debate this uh, historic uh, bill to address our country's infrastructure needs. You know, whether it is uh, roads or bridges that are in dire need of maintenance, whether it is the extreme need we have to make affordable, accessible broadband available to everybody in Minnesota and in this country, uh, the needs for clean drinking water and wastewater infrastructure that have, uh, just are in such are, are so deeply needed. This bill is going to go a long way towards addressing those needs. So I think it's going to be a very good thing. And I believe it also needs to go in concert with the additional work we need to do to help lower costs for uh, regular working families and lower taxes for regular working families, which is the part of the uh, part of the work that we want to get done that doesn't have bipartisan support. Uh, so I feel optimistic about this. You know, can you t- just think about it? How many weeks have we talked about this is infrastructure week? And I believe that over the next uh, couple of weeks, we're going to get this finished in the Senate. It'll go to the House and the president will support it and uh, gives me some optimism we can do some good work. So let's step out in the weeds for just a little bit. Uh, Speaker Pelosi has said that she doesn't see attention on the smaller bipartisan deal for infrastructure without assurances that a larger three and a half trillion dollar package is going to be considered. Budget Committee Chair uh, Sanders has suggested he has the votes for the larger plan. What are your thoughts about the two? Well, I believe that these two uh, these two things really need to go together. They actually are this, the, this, the same proposals that President Biden uh, ran and won on. And they're divided up into two bills um, in the Senate and ultimately in the House, but they go together and they are really about lowering taxes for middle-class um, Americans, um, making things like child care and health care more affordable, making the investments in infrastructure that we need, which is not only going to make us um, more competitive, but it's going to create jobs. And I think that Senator Sanders is right, that we do have support in the Democratic Senate uh, for get, to get both of those bills done. So one will pass with bipartisan support, one will pass uh, with uh, 50 Democratic votes, and all of the benefit is going to go to Minnesotans and Americans who know that there's great need out there, and this is going to, I think, make it so that families' lives just work better. Do the dollars sure. and the deficit concern you? Well, I believe that the Senate budget plan, which is going to pass with just Democratic votes, is going to be paid for. I think that it's important to remember that. And even the bipartisan bill, though the funding on that, honestly, is a little bit less clear to me. I haven't seen all of the details. I think it's going to be mostly paid for. So 
Yes, we have to worry about our deficit. And I think that also we have to do the kind of investing in families and in our country's infrastructure that, that is so long overdue. And I mean, for heaven's sakes, these are investments in roads and bridges and broadband that have been needed for literally for, you know, 10 years or more. And so I'm excited to see that we're going to get to it and we're going to get it done. President Biden has mentioned corporate tax increases and an end perhaps to stepped up basis to help to fund some of these infrastructure Mm -hmm. plans. Are you concerned about the tax burden and the succession of farms and and small businesses? Well, in the Build Back Better agenda that we're working to pass, I think the first thing to keep in mind is it includes the largest tax cut for folks making under $400,000 a year that we've seen in a long, long time. In addition, it says if you are amongst the richest of Americans and you or you're a big multinational corporation and you're not paying your fair share, then, yeah, you should be asked to pay more, and I support that. But I appreciate this worry about stepped-up basis and farmers who are wondering what impact that's going to have on them and their farms. And one thing I want to draw people's attention to is that in the agreement that we have as Democrats, we say that we will not raise taxes on family farmers. This is really important, and I think as we go through this process, I'm, of course, going to be keeping an eye out on how, how these tax provisions affect small businesses and um, and family farmers, and certainly I agree with the president that we shouldn't be talking about raising taxes on people um, that are making less than $400,000 a year. Uh, we should be looking for ways to lower taxes, and that's what we have in this plan. Senator, I'd like, if you don't mind, to speak to President Biden's executive order, especially toward competition yeah. and, and consolidation, and especially now as it pertains to price discovery in the cattle market. Senator Grassley speaking to that last week, the week before that. Senator mm-hmm. Chester also suggesting that something he's very concerned about. Neither really liked the idea of more government inside a free market system, but also suggested the free market system isn't working and something has to be done. Well, I think Senator Grassley and Senator Tester have been doing great work on this. And I can tell you from the many conversations I have with Minnesota cattle ranchers, we have a situation where four big companies control over 80% of the cattle processing, the beef processing in this country. And that means that they have exorbitant market power. And the result is that Cattle producers are making pennies on the dollar, and American consumers are paying more for hamburger at the grocery store. I think that the market is out of whack. And, you know, 100 years ago, we passed the Packers and Stockyards Act to try to make sure that there was fair competition. This is why Senator Mike Rounds, Republican from South Dakota, and I joined together to call on the Justice Department to look into this. And if we are having unfair trade practices, Uh, We need to stop it. If the laws are being followed, but the laws aren't tough enough, we need to think about changing our antitrust laws. So that's an important step. I think also the steps that the administration has taken uh, to uh, try to give a little bit more market power to cattle producers who, you know, just often just feel like they're price takers, not price makers. And sometimes I talk to people who say they feel almost like they're contractors and not independent businesses because there's so little transparency in the market. Uh, I think the president's executive orders are uh, were, were in the right direction. Well, speaking to some members of the cattle industry, they recognize that not all cattle production is the same. 
It varies by region. It varies in so many different ways. And is there a one-size-fits-all that will resolve this situation? It may not be that easy. Well, I mean, of course, that's right. Of course, it's uh, it's complicated. It always is complicated, and there's a lot of diversity in uh, cattle production. But one thing I think we can agree on, which is that when you see this kind of concentration in the processing field, that that is just, uh, it, it, it can result in an imbalance in market power that ends up hurting independent producers. And that's what I'm concerned about. And that's why I think, you know, it, it, this is just one solution. It's not going to fix the entire, and it's not going to fix the entire problem. Uh, we should be looking at how to um, add more processing and different scale of processing. Now, I realize we're not going to go back to the day when my grandmother lived in a small town in northern Indiana, and every town had a meat locker and a and a you know a butcher and a processor. So there was lots of choices for folks. Uh, but I do think that there was some strength in that kind of diversity and some. Um, uh, you know, it's not only about competitiveness, but it's also about the security of our food chain, of our, of our food supply chain too. At a hearing this week, a subcommittee hearing in the House, one of those processors blamed the labor situation and suggested that if labor was resolved, they'd be able to do a better job and move through this price disparity situation. Well, I'll tell you, I think a couple of things. One, we need to make sure that those jobs and those processing facilities are good jobs that people want. We also need to appreciate, at least in Minnesota, you know, a lot of the folks who work in the meat processing sector are new Americans. They're immigrants. And at a time when we have dramatically reduced the number of people that are able to come into our country legally, we also are experiencing severe labor shortages in some sectors, including in the processing sector. So I tend to think that it's another example of why we really need to we need to understand that our immigration system is broken and we need to address that. And that, again, is, you know, it's an issue that businesses talk about as much as people who are concerned about the immigration rights issues. Senator, none of the agriculture issues I think that uh, you and the country are facing today are easy. So this one's out no, of this, this one's out of the skillet and into the fire, if you will. I'd like to talk about our energy needs of the nation. President Biden seems to strongly favor electric vehicles. He's proposed an investment in infrastructure and recharging stations and even incentives to both build and to buy electric cars. Not as much money for renewable fuels. It's important to rural America and also has a pretty good track record for the environment. How do you balance? Do you you pick one or the other, or, or how do you balance this step forward? Well, I think balance is absolutely the key word. I start from the value that renewable energy is rural energy. It is homegrown energy. And that is certainly true for renewable liquid fuels. Now, I support the president's push to clean up our electric grid so that we are reducing carbon emissions in our electric grid. I'm working hard on doing that and also looking at, at ways that we can uh, power our transportation system more with electricity. That's going to benefit rural America because a lot of that renewable energy is wind and solar that is produced in rural America. But we also need to understand that, of course, we're going to be needing liquid fuel to drive our cars and our buses and our airplanes and our tractors for a long time. And that's why we have to appreciate and strengthen the role of renewable fuel 
um, in that energy transition. Because not only is it uh, rural power, not only does it support the rural economy, but it is good for stable prices, and it is good for climate because the carbon intensity of that renewable fuel is lower and it is getting lower. There is in- increased innovation that we're seeing um, across the map that is making it a lot more efficient when it comes to lowering carbon emissions. So I think you started it out in exactly the right way. This isn't an either-or. This is an all-of-the-above strategy when it comes to renewable fuels. Let me just say one other thing. I'm just I'm quite excited about, I mean, there's going to be a long, long time before we're going to see anybody who wants to get in an airplane that is powered by a battery. But we are seeing incredible inroads in advanced biofuels, including uh, uh, jet biofuels. And that's the kind of innovation that we need to keep pushing for and we want to be on the forefront of um, here in America. Well, as you hear more and more about moving toward electricity, the first thing you think of is about 60% of the electric grid is powered by still a fossil fuel. And at the same time, even with the grid as it stands today, there are concerns about adequate supply in portions of the country, mm-hmm. you wonder in this debate, should there not be a discussion of, of building the grid and making it stronger to satisfy this growing demand? You are exactly right. The electric grid in our country is outmoded. Um, it is in need of investment. And if you want evidence of that, all you have to do is look at what happened when we had a severe storm in Texas last February, I think it was, and the impacts of that on the electric grid um, reached all the way up to northwestern Minnesota, where there were challenges with power because the grid just couldn't um, withstand the disturbance that happened because of that weather event. So I believe this is super important, and I want to also just point out that in this bipartisan infrastructure deal, which um, I believe we're going to be passing in the next couple of weeks in the Senate, there is support and appreciation and investment to, I think, the single largest investment to support reinvigorating and enhancing the resilience of the electric grid. And this is going to be important for everybody, but I think especially of people living in small towns and rural places who probably are members of their local co-op, and that may well be where they get their power. And that's going to be a benefit to them, as well as folks that live in, you know, big cities and suburban communities and, um, you know, towns, regional centers. Farmers and renewable fuel advocates were somewhat frustrated uh, with the Trump administration for the granting of those SREs. But even yep. now, we're, we're watching closely how this EPA is going to guide the RFS and those are also keeping an eye on legislation and some that would do completely away with the renewable fuel standard. So what should be done or what do you expect with regard to renewable fuels? If it's going to play an important role in the future, then what needs to be done to maintain it? Well, I am a strong supporter of the renewable fuel standard. The renewable fuel standard has worked to create new markets for homegrown American ethanol, improving the carbon footprint of transportation, and creating jobs. It's, it's, a, it's a success. These refinery waivers have been, in my view, misused and overused, and I heard a lot of frustration about that during the Trump administration. And I think it's important that we, ex- we ask these refineries to live up to you know, what, what the law says. Now, of course, they're always going to try to figure out how they can use more of the own, you know, their fuel and use less renewable fuel. 
but I don't care. I want to. I, I think that we have to figure out. We have to follow this law. I would be totally opposed to reducing it or making it easier for the refineries to uh, get these waivers. And trust me, uh, know that um, I, along with Senator Klobuchar and many others, are um, making sure that the Biden administration knows that that's how we feel and that's what we think needs to happen. So the Clean Water Act is still on the books, and the Obama administration attempted to answer some questions about jurisdiction with a WOTUS rule. The Trump administration wrote another set of regulations for the Clean Water Act, and now we may be headed down that road again. Minnesota is a beautiful state. You see normally quite a bit of water. Are you concerned about a rewrite of these set of regulations and how it can affect your producers and your landowners? Well, you know, I'll tell you, it has been a source of real frustration for folks to just have the rules. You know, there's one set of rules and there's another set of rules and then there's a third set of rules. And people are trying to make decisions about how to manage their land in this complicated regulatory environment. And I get why that is so frustrating. And I think we need to settle in on what we're going to do and then we need to make sure that it's practical and that it works. And I'm always one that thinks that when you're writing rules like this, you have to consult with the people that are going to be putting it into action. And you also need to understand that, you know, I've learned this from many, many conversations with Minnesota farmers and ranchers, that nobody cares more than they do about the quality of the water on their land or near their land. That's the water that they drink and that their kids and grandkids swim and fish in. So we need to, I hope, get to some place of certainty around these rules. We need to understand that, you know, we all know this. We have challenges with water quality. We certainly have challenges with water quality in Minnesota, and we can't just pretend that that's not there. But then we need to get to a clear place about what we're going to do about it and, and stick to it. Senator Smith, I want to thank you so much for taking time and an awfully busy schedule to visit with us on these issues. It's a pleasure to have you on Open Mic. Senator, it is Open Mic, and today you have the last word. <laughs> well, geez, I just Jeff, want to say thank you so much for giving me the chance to, to talk with you. And as I am sitting here in Washington, D.C. and thinking about going home to Minnesota, I'm looking at a map of uh, the uh, kind of where we are with fighting this pandemic that we're still in the midst of fighting. And so I want to just say to everyone who's listening that I hope you stay safe and well. And if you um, haven't gotten the vaccine, I hope you'll think about getting that vaccine. Uh, It is going to be good for you and your family. It's going to help us recover. It's going to help our economy get back on track. And I think we can see from this Delta variant uh, that the risks are not over. So be careful and be safe out there. Our thanks to Minnesota Senator Tina Smith, our guest this week on Open Mic. AgriPulse Open Mic is brought to you by the American Sugar Alliance. Learn more about the Zero for Zero plan to zero out global sugar subsidies at sugaralliance.org. For AgriPulse, I'm Jack Daly.